Clemson Dubcast. Friday, January 14th. Clemson football coaches hammering the recruiting trail today. Really busy day for them in advance of hosting some visitors this weekend. Brandon Streeter taking a trip to visit some guy named Arch Manning. Paul Strelo, as always, has the goods on that and plenty of other recruiting intel at tigerillustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864 990 Four five eight one, or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803 774 0435 or go to uptownrealtysc.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, Media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, catching up with Bill DeAndre, wide-ranging conversation with him. Went over to his house a few days ago. Uh, a little bit of background noise at times. Microphone picked up some wind chimes and some other, I guess, uh, in-home ambiance, you could say. All right, here we go. Great stuff from Billy D. All right, joined by Billy DeAndre. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, Larry. Uh, frequent. Well, I don't want to say frequent, but uh, multiple time guest on the on the podcast, and really, really always enjoy talking to you. We had breakfast last week, and the conversation was so good that I'm sitting there thinking, man, I, I need to, to to sit down officially and have a podcast, another podcast with him. So, all right. You're a judge. I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm a municipal judge for the town of Central. And um, I can tell you that it's been a very interesting and it's been very uh, unique situation. Uh, you know, I was a criminal justice major in college, but certainly uh, spent, you know, close to 40 some years in coaching and athletics. And um, one of the uh, town managers um, saw me one day and asked me, said, we need a local judge in case they need to sign a search warrant or whatever. Um, We have a couple judges, but they live one in Simpsonville and one in Pottersville. Our senior judge is an attorney. And then we have another judge that kind of started at the same time as I had. So um, I had to go to school for about six weeks. 
about every month we have to watch a video on various crimes and whatnot that we'll be dealing with. Now, we see, um, you know, a lot of shoplifting, driving under suspension, um, domestic violence, uh, a lot of um, narcotics and drugs and whatnot. And, um, but, you know, certain crimes like attempted murder or larceny or burglary, uh, those will those won't be seen in our court. They go to a general sessions court. Um, sex crimes, uh, various things of that day. Certain certain enhancement crimes. If you get caught uh, three or four times for shoplifting, that goes to a general session court. Um, so, um, but it, it it really has been fascinating. It, you know, it's a part of society that we know about. But um, to just kind of be involved in it, it's been really interesting, you know. And I did it because, um, you know, I, I feel like we're somewhat put here to serve others and to help others. And, you know, primarily what I do, probably 80% of the time, is I'm a bonding judge. So when someone gets arrested, you have 24 hours to do a bond hearing, and it's based on whether you're going to personal recognizance that person or put them on a surety bond, depending on the severity of the crime and their criminal history. You know, so um, I find out who's in jail when I'm on duty. Uh, I find out what the crime is. Uh, I look it up in the statutes that I have. And it gives you a lot of guidance. Um, you know, you have latitude, uh, but you can't um, overextend your authority. Um, you know, I couldn't put somebody on a $20,000 bond for shoplifting, you know. So, um, and, and we have a lot of information, educational information, that when somebody gets arrested for uh, driving under suspension, we try to give them a brochure, or at least I do, to kind of say, look, this is how you can get this. Go to DMV, get this corrected. Um, or if they've been arrested several times for drugs, um, there's um, various organizations that will help you rather than trying to kick it on your own and whatnot. So, um, you know, but it's, it's trying to help and serve the community and help others. So to... What created the vacancy uh, to, to make them reach out to you? Did somebody retire? Or? We did. We had, we had two people retire, one for health reasons and one who was really about 80 years old, and he, he had just got tired of, you know, kind of doing it. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure. I had to talk to some people first. And, you know, I talked to some judges that were at Clemson, I talked to Gary Clary, mm-hmm. you know, um, and um, and I and I've sat as a judge, but with my senior judge beside me, you know. So, but primarily, I'm, I'm I guess I would you would say that, uh, or the the other gentleman and myself are bonding judges primarily right now. When you asked for that advice from Gary Clary and others, what did they say? Um. He, he basically told me that um, you're going to be 
dealing with a lot of misdemeanors, you know, uh, crime that um, people, you know, not not violent crime. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have to make hard decisions, you know. Now we, I could bond somebody uh, or put them on a surety bond for those charges like attempted murder or larceny or, you know, or no bond. You know, I, I've had, I've had a few people that have had attempted murder and we don't put a bond on them. They have to just come to court and their court date might be a month out. Uh, but we wouldn't see that in Central's municipal court, but, but I have, I have had to do that. And you said, uh, Six weeks of school. What what did that consist of? Um, I had to go to Columbia for a week, and then about two weeks later, I did a week of Zoom here, and then I had to go back to Columbia. So it was a six-week uh, schooling uh, over about three months, and then I had to take a test, and you have to get 80 or better on the test to be certified. And uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't that difficult because they prepared you for the test. Um, and it's the same test that magistrates have to take. And, um, you know, I, I did do some studying for it because I don't have a legal background or anything. But um, uh, our clerk of court, Tina Galbraith, has just really been instrumental in training us and the new judges, you know, the, the, our senior judge, who's an attorney, he's also a judge in Easley. Um, so, uh, there, there's some procedures you've got to, uh, go through and learn to put names in the computer and make sure the warrants are, you know, go to the state and various things that nature. So it's been a learning process, but it's been, it's, it's been interesting. So how long ago? How long has it been? Um, let's see. I've been doing this since uh, it'll probably be a, a year in March. Okay. So. Um, and then I guess I guess you started during the pandemic. You know when I did. But you know things were still shut down. What was that like? Well, um, we didn't have court for a long time. Now a lot of courts operated on Zoom, but. What our clerk of court did, simply we were doing, dealing with a lot of those misdemeanors, we just delayed the court date. We informed those people through uh, mail that, you know, we're, we're pushing back your court date because of the pandemic. So, And then when they opened the courts back up, you know, you had to wear a mask and, and various things of that nature. So, What are the—do you just get a call, or is there a set— uh, sort of on call time period that you're that you're we, under. We have a schedule. Okay. Uh, there's actually three judges, and uh, so normally, you know, you're you're kind of on call for three days, and then those two other judges have three or four days, and then you get a four day period, and then you know, so sometimes you're working through the weekend. As a matter of fact, because I switched some days during the fall because of football I had the whole week of Christmas and I had 
I was pretty busy, believe it or not. Uh-huh. A lot of shoplifting, a lot of domestic violence. Uh, even had three people on Christmas Day that I had to go. Wow. To, you had to go on Christmas Day. I had, I had to go to the jail on Christmas Day because they have 24 hours to have a bond hearing no matter who you are. I mean, uh, it could be Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to go three separate times? No, or no, no. I only went one time. For those three, three people. people. Yeah. So, yeah. so if I today on Wednesday afternoon, if I'm, I leave your house and I get arrested for driving under suspension, how soon would you get the call if you're on call? And how soon would you see me? <clears throat> well, what I normally do is Pickens County has a website. So whenever somebody gets arrested from Central, they post that on their website probably within an hour that you're arrested. Now, it's not always accurate, but it gives the judge an opportunity to see who the person is, what the crime is, what the state statute is. It gives you a chance to look up some of the parameters. And then I usually call the jail to make sure that maybe this is the only person or, you know, there's another person up there. And uh, so I would, if you got arrested this afternoon, I would probably do your bond by 12 o'clock uh, the next day. Okay. Um, so. so, wow. Uh, I'm sure you see a bunch of stuff. And it's interesting, like, where Clemson is situated is so sort of, I don't want to say unique, but... It's interesting in that you have a college town that is really close to the outlying sort of different, much different demographics, rural. Right. And so I'm guessing that there's being in central, you see a lot of the um, a lot of the crimes from those sort of outlying areas that aren't like typical of college town per se. Well, you know, I think you have, you know, you know, hopefully most of the students here. Um, come from well-to-do parents, and you know they they're pretty responsible, and and um, you know they're they're you're probably going to have disorderly conduct or public drunkenness or something, um, but it is unique. I think you know Central has a kind of a different socioeconomic population, you know. And then one of the things that probably 30% of what I see is shoplifting at Walmart, Mm -hmm. you know, and all kind of unique scams, you know, the skip scam where you scan your own um, items to leave. You know, you might have six items and you scan four and you try to, and and all of that's on a monitor and, you know, on a TV monitor and video and stuff. So uh, it's all, you know, they catch you all the time, but it's like any criminal. They think they're going to get away with it, you know. And um, so, and a lot of times people use the garden center to exit because there's usually only one cashier Mm -hmm. there. Um, or somebody will check out and maybe give a check and say, I need an ID. And they, they say, well, let me go to my car and mm-hmm. get it. And they put their stuff in their car and they never come back. Just, you know, people trying to be creative to get away with things. You see a lot of repeat visitors? I do. 
It's interesting. Primarily, most of those are drug offenders. Crystal meth. A lot of meth. Um, believe it or not, heroin is in this area. Cocaine. Uh, a lot of pills. Xanax. Um, you know, just... Um, you, you, you sometimes I have to look up the, the what what they actually are and what they you know what they do. But yes, a lot of that. And um, you know, I also see um, people that have felonies that are still carrying weapons, mm. and that's that's a serious serious crime. Um, once you get a felony, you, you can't be in possession. You can't even be in possession of ammunition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once they search the car and they find that, you know, it's um, it's a serious offense. So, Do you uh, have you ever seen anybody you know? Because <laughs> you know I, a lot of people <laughs> and you're pretty recognizable. I, I haven't. No. Um, I've been pretty fortunate, you know, so... Uh, I haven't had anybody come to court or, you know, even get a traffic ticket. I haven't seen anybody come through traffic court that's, uh, that I've known. So, so people I know are all on good behavior. <laughs> Funny story. A, a, a guy my mom dated in college, when she went back to nursing school later uh, when, when she had uh, me and, and my two siblings. And a guy she dated in college who was in law school. Ten years, fifteen years later, I was, I got like a, a disorderly conduct or something uh, down in Mount Pleasant, and I went to had to go to court, and he was the judge, and we both <laughs> recognized each other, and it's like this is kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah. So what? Um, you mentioned your sort of um, the calling to uh, to serve your community, and I know you, you've been involved in is it Clemson Community Care. Uh, uh, now it's uh, the, um, the Clemson community. The, it's the Greater Clemson Community um, Foundation. Gotcha. The Greater Clemson. We, we it, it started as the Clemson Community Foundation. We changed that. I actually um, Kelly Durham and Joe Turner, who kind of at the inception of that, ran that for a while without a full time. Director, and it was all run by volunteers, and they did a great job. But um, when I retired from Anderson, they came to me and asked me if I would, you know, take the position as an executive director. They needed a full-time person to kind of stay after it on a day-to-day basis and raise some money. And um, we, we had some handicaps. I mean, it was started. Um, by a group of people that took a class through the chamber, and they were um, they were expected to establish some kind of initiative. Um, classes in the past maybe would put a flagpole up for Larry Allen and raise I mean Larry Williams and raise two thousand dollars and then move on. Well. Um, Former city manager Rick Cotton was part of this class, and they started this Clemson Community Foundation. And even though it was started with 15 people that gave $100, it has manifested today to a pretty substantial, I think I think we're close to about a, a half a million dollars mm. in it. And um, 
you know, it, it really, I mean, we're a better community when we all can contribute to everybody, you know, to help the poor, to help those that, and now the community foundation doesn't necessarily provide a service. You know, we don't provide clothes or food or whatnot, but we support the nonprofit organizations. Um, the free clinic, Clemson Community Care, Helping Hands, um, victim advocates for abused um, children and stuff, parents. So um, we're in the community, and it's beginning to get imbued. It's beginning to get some legs on it. And I think it will definitely manifest where it's going to be uh, a beacon for a lot of a lot of things that we're doing here. Do you, whether it's serving in that capacity or as a as a judge or, or whatever else, is it is it something you do partly to stay busy and partly to because you want to serve your community? What's your what drives you to what's the sort of well, you know, I I mean I think we're put here to serve, and I think even if you look back at Clemson. I think one one of the underlying things is community service. You know, they expect their students. But I think respect is earned. Honesty is appreciated. Trust is valued. And loyalty is returned. So, you know, I, I think uh, if you have the respect, you're honest with people, um, and people trust you that that return is going to come to you. And I feel like I've been very fortunate uh, to have uh, opportunities at Clemson and Anderson and to direct this community foundation to be a judge um, that I feel like it's important for me to give back and you know, help other people, help young people. Um, and um, I've been blessed. And I think my wife feels the same way. So. So a few news items, big news items in, in, in recent weeks that have sort of a, a Billy D tie-in. The most recent, uh, Nick Eason returning to Clemson as a defensive tackles coach. And uh, last week I did a lot of uh, talking to folks who, who, who know him, uh, Rick Stockstall, who recruited him, uh, Brian McNeil, who was his uh, oh, yeah. roommate, uh, not, not only in Clemson but in Denver where they both – uh, were drafted, and your name came up several times while talking to people like them and Tim Beret. And uh, what do you? I mean, he just seemed. I wasn't here then, um, but it just seemed like he was larger than life and kind of blossomed, not just as an athlete, but as a a person who was kind of devoted to the community service sort of ethos that you just talked about. He was. Well, Nick was always very mature. Um, he had a mature outlook on what he wanted to do, even from a freshman. Um, he was responsible. He was an independent learner. Um, he always was organized. Um, you know, he probably was in the study hall the first semester like every freshman student athlete. But after that, he never was in the study hall. He was, I, I want to say he was a 3.0 student. Many times he made the honor roll. And back then, we had a personal growth and development program. And we tried to model it um, 
after the ACC, and the ACC had a, a top six award, and it was about community service. Mm-hmm. And Nick won that award, was, was one of the six student athletes that won that award every year he was here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he just, he was, he was, like you say, he was larger than life in a lot of ways when he worked with kids, you know, uh, and he was a leader. And, um, you know, guys would complain about things and he, he, you know, he'd step up and say, hey, you know, get on with it. You know, let's do it. Um, I want to I hope to see Nick. One of his goals, um, and he'll tell you this, he wanted to be an FBI agent. And I'm going to tell him, I don't think FBI agents are making the salary you're making today. <laughs> Very true. Very true. But, he, he, you know, he was focused. He wanted, he wanted to do that. And uh, that was something that he wanted to do. We talked about it all the time. And, and actually, I had a college teammate that was an FBI agent, but I think he talked to it one time, you know. So Brian McNeil shared a story. He said their first, their redshirt year here, um, it was like during or after August camp, so this brutal stretch of practices. Nick tells Bryant, "Hey, come with me. I'm going to go over to Central and and visit with this little league football team." And Bryant's like, "What? What are you talking about? What? <laughs> We're going to do what?" So anyway, it just it was a really interesting window into into that community service part where he just loved being around yeah. kids and and serving others. He was he was he was a natural and you know a lot of times we take um, a group of kids you know players somewhere and they'd want to know how long you're going to be there what's this all about and then when they get back in the van they would say when can we do that mm. again you know because because they do get a lot out of it as, as well too you know not just the kids that they're going to see. Mm-hmm. So, um. So I know uh, Stockstill told me that during his, um, well, after he signed with Clemson, he Nick initially um, didn't have the high enough test high enough test score, uh, and then he set a goal, uh, a certain goal. I don't know what the number was, but even after he qualified, even after he met the qualifying score, he kept taking the test. To improve, to try to get, to try to meet the goal that he had set for himself, which was beyond a qualifying score, and so it just sounds like. What do you think was the root of of him sort of uh, finding that drive and motivation to to achieve academically? I, just from your recollection, yeah, I mean, I think he, you know, he had that innate kind of um, competitiveness about him, you know. Uh, he was um, he was somebody that I think wanted to be successful. I think he knew he had ability, but he also invested in himself. If football didn't work out, which it did work out for him, both in the NFL and now as a college coach, and I'm sure he's on to um, you know a, a, a bright future for Nick. But um, yeah, he just you know um, he he was. There's some student athletes um, uh, never got to be all straight A's, and uh, that was something they wanted to, you know, to graduate with. And uh, um, 
there was others that just wanted to get by. You know? mm-hmm. But Nick, I think, wanted to do the very best. You know, it was always kind of his DNA. So another uh, news event recently, uh, Dan Radakovich leaves for Miami. Graham Neff is his uh, successor. Uh, I know you've been around Graham. You know him. What are your thoughts on that transition? And I know there was also a um, there was kind of like a Facebook uh, campaign yeah. for you to, to to get the job. I just want to touch on that some. <laughs> well, um, I certainly um, uh, think Graham is a bright young superstar. He's smart. Um, I think he has a great uh, outlook on the financial picture. And I also think he has people skills. And um, I'm not trying to pick on Dan or anything, but I think Dan did a lot of good things for Clemson. Um, you know, building the Reeves Center, building soccer, building a new tennis facility. He did a tremendous amount of uh, facility investment and whatnot. But um, um, I think Graham will invest a little more in people and the donors and relationships, as well as do some things that, that he wants to achieve. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know I had a, a lot of people supporting me, you know, a lot of student athletes that went through Vickery Hall and, uh, some of them that I coached and whatnot. And, um, um, yeah, I, I really don't want, uh, to sign up for 24 seven cause that's a, that's a serious job. I'm enjoying my retirement. I'm on several boards and, uh, but I, you know, I, I will be here to help Graham in any possible way that I can. And uh, if he ever has any uh, anything that he wants to run by me. Uh, because, you know, uh, hiring people, firing people is complex. You're dealing with families. Making that decision is hard. Uh, it's not as easy. Um, sometimes hiring people is the roll of the dice. You, you think you're getting somebody, and when they get here, you really don't have them. So uh, those are complex issues. And, um, you know, just dealing with student-athlete demands and academics and faculty and, and whatnot. So, I, but I, I think Graham will do well. When It seems like, and you, you mentioned this, um, and I don't think it's a criticism of Dan Radakovich, but he was more of the CEO type, um, more sort of removed, I guess you could say. And I think you could argue that at Clemson, the better fit is the better cultural sort of um, fit, I guess, with the person who speaks the Clemson language and who uh, family. Pl- places family, family places more of an emphasis on relationships yeah. and. It does seem like Graham is, is 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 you know fits that to a T. Is that? I agree. Uh, in, in the, in, I mean, you know, a lot of people. You talk to a lot of people. You're around the community. Is that the general feel that you get, sort of, from uh, um, Clemson folks? Yeah, I think Clemson folks are extremely excited about Graham being the athletic director. I I, I think the consensus, and like I said, not to pick on Dan. I think you know. Um, he just was a little distant, you know, uh, somewhat maybe difficult to get to know. Um, and um, 
I'm sure if you sat down with him, if he gave you the time, I'm sure that you know he would he, he would give you a good conversation and all that. But uh, he seemed to be driven, you know, mm-hmm. and didn't have time for for those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly his uh, vision and whatnot, um, we can be commended on for what he's done. So you know, everybody has their strengths. Yeah. You know. Um, when when Dan got the job, um, you you were a candidate. Dabo favored you. Um, I think he was Brad. pretty uh, – Brad as well. Um, we're in your corner. Obviously, Dan gets the job, and then you work under him for how long? How long was a, that? A little over a year. Okay. Was that difficult? Like, What was that like? Um, you know, I um – I I think I would say it this way. You know, I applied for the job when Terry Don got it, okay? And um, I didn't know Terry Don from Adam's house cat. But um, I was over in Vickery, and um, it was like 6.30 in the evening, and I see this person walking in the Vickery. I mean, I think finals were over and everything, and I was wonder who this is and he came in my office and introduced himself and that day that evening he wanted me to move over to be his right hand mm-hmm. person right then and he didn't know me from Adam's mm-hmm. house cat but um so I think Terry Don embraced um me maybe you heard about that you know I've been here a while and people uh, like me the uh, I'm engaged with the donors and the student athletes and whatnot, so I, I I felt comfortable around Terry Don. You know, I felt like he uh, I could help him. And uh, when Dan came, I was actually in Ipte at that time, and he moved me uh, back over to McFadden. And of course, I I supervised both men and women's golf, men and women's soccer, and men and women's tennis. And I had the letter winners. And I don't, I don't know. It was kind of, uh, you know, I had done sports supervision yeah. before. So um, it's kind of like taking a step back. But, I mean, he treated me good. I mean, he, um, um, you know, he let me do what I, what I wanted to do. I just felt like I probably could have helped him more with relationship building that uh, but that wasn't really what he wanted to put me in that role so you know um, how the job of an AD now and, and probably the reason that you just said you don't want anything 24-7 <laughs> is just so vastly different than it was a decade ago or even oh, yeah. six seven years ago I totally agree I think one of the major things is uh, change is certainly fundraising. I mean, an athletic director probably has to spend, you know, forty percent of his time fundraising, uh, making compelling statements for needs, facilities, scholarships, whatever. Uh, and then you got to take care of your coaches that are, you know, here for all 16, 18 sports now, um, student-athletes' concerns. Um, and then you have uh, what I think is the changing landscape in football with the NLI, the transfer portal. Um, 
those are complex issues now. Roster management, scholarship allocations, um, you know, the business end. You got the board to deal with, uh, you know, the board of trustees. Um, you got a lot of people to keep happy. I mean, it's a complex, um, you know, situation. And um, that's why I say uh, uh, it's a 24-7 mm-hmm. job. You know, it's, it's not something that you leave at the office at 6 o'clock when you come home. Mm-hmm. You know, your mind's always spinning. And what donor do I need to see next? Or, you know, how can I help this coach be more successful? And, you know, uh, I was supposed to see one of the student athletes that wanted to see me today, but I didn't get to them. And so, um, so. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's a tough situation, you know. Today, more more so than years ago. Same with uh, college coaches, and <laughs> that oh. and that their uh, time demands, which were already ridiculous, uh, are now um, you know they're in addition to the uncertainty about where things are headed, they're having to recruit their own guys on their roster right. to make sure they're not leaving. Uh, what is this like for you as a former coach, as a former administrator, uh, to see this just the velocity of change? Um, well, I, I think one of the things is I think it probably changes the the kind of atmosphere on which you can coach from. Um, you know, years ago, I mean, I coached under Danny Ford, who was tough and hard-nosed and you know, um, a lot of physical practices, all that has changed. Um, you know, getting after somebody, um, you know, uh, has changed. I think you have to be more diplomatic, you know. Uh, kids aren't going to respond to that. Kids nowadays want to respond to, okay, show me why I'm not playing, you know. Show me on film what I'm doing wrong. So it, I think it changes the whole perspective of how you approach kids today and 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 how you manage them, and um, and I I think it's somewhat of a me society, and um, you know it's the to me football has always been the ultimate team sport, and in some way I think that's where a lot of people are a little bit disenchanted with this kind of me philosophy. You know, what can I, you know, I, I have no regrets where somebody can make, um, um, you know, income off of their name, likeness, and image. Um, I, I, don't, I don't regret that, although I think there ought to be some parameters by the NCAA on how that, is all constructed and um, it just seems like it's the wild wild west right now with you know things that you hear about texas a&m raising 25 to 30 million for a recruiting class and um what do i hear about fifty thousand dollars the offensive lineman going to texas um you know um I mean, you know, when I was coaching, I think there were three things, you know, that the NCAA was not going to tolerate, and that was cash money, um, uh, gambling, and lying to the NCAA. 
And, I mean, that whole format has changed. Um, so, um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's definitely changed the way you coach, the way you approach things. And I think it's changed the way you recruit. You, you have to recruit someone that understands the culture like what Dabo has created here. And, um, you know, and I, I think he's done a great job. I will say, you know, in the 90s, we probably had some character issues and we recruited some kids with bad character. And maybe they just didn't do their homework on them. But I think, um, you know, Dabo makes prudent decisions on academics, whether they can compete in this arena and character, you know, and takes advice from the coaches and the parents and counselors, and and I think that's important. It's like back when when you were coaching, you know, you the the quote unquote de recruitment phase when they when they you know, when when you're recruiting them, you're telling them all the great things that are going to happen right away, and then once that first August camp starts, it's uh, uh, reality descends, and now but now it's like you have to worry about if you are too hard on that first or second day, they can just up and leave. Yeah. Not that that's happening, you know, in, in, in huge numbers, but it's still something you have to think about in the sure. back of your mind uh, through the course of a, of a season. I mean, it's still a physical game and you still have to practice physical, but, um, you know, I wonder if the transfer porthole was available when Coach Ford was coaching. How many people would have transferred? Oh my lord! <laughs> Billy know. Billy Davis has made the point that they wouldn't have won the national championship in '81 because so many the practices would have been would have been so hard after the five and six season in '80 that half the team would have transferred. That's a good point. Yeah, it's probably it's probably right. You're probably right. Um, what about the, the the part that and Dabo gets? I mean, he he gets crucified for whatever he says nowadays. Like nationally, it seems like people are just really cynical about him but um he his biggest concern he says is is the graduation rates um are going to go down um when you have so many people that are leaving going to the transfer <coughs> portal i mean you can have large numbers of them who can't find a, a a place to go just because the numbers there aren't enough spots but even the ones who do uh find a place to go just they're the chances of their graduation are are diminished because of the difficulty of transferring credits and things right. like that. Uh, that was one of the points that Rick Stock still made. You know, he said that he's like, if I get a D at Clemson and I transfer <coughs> to another school, well, no. I got to retake that class or whatever. Anyway, and I think yeah. Dabo's point is is totally legitimate about the the uh, you know, just watch the graduation rates are going to go down well, i think he's exactly right and i think you're exactly right i mean spending 12 years in academics i can tell you that um i'm not going to say clemson was unfriendly with transfers but depending on the major that you were transferring into not all those classes are accepted. You might take a business class, a, a management class at Texas or somewhere that won't transfer to Clemson and vice versa. Maybe the Clemson class won't transfer to Texas. So guys that are transferring, I mean, they can get eligible, 
by meeting satisfactory progress in the spring or with summer school. You've got two sessions of summer school, so you can get your required hours. But um, that also might delay them a semester and a summer school session to graduate. So they may finish their eligibility in, in the fall and thinking they're going to graduate, but they still may have you know, 12, 15, 17 hours to finish their degree. And I think Dabo's exactly right. Um, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I know they say, they haven't talked about it, they say if so-and-so transfers, he's eligible immediately. Well, they still have to meet the academic rigor at that institution and the, satisf- the NCAA um, satisfactory progress you know, you have to have so many, you know, it's a 20, 40, 60, 80. You can't just major in English and change a major to, an, mm-hmm. you know, to another major to be eligible. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be, you kind of have, that's one thing about an athlete is you have to kind of make a decision on what major you're going to engage in early. You know, where a regular student could major in education for two years and then they might decide to say well I want to go to business and they can it's not going to impact them they might have to take more courses uh, but uh, as an athlete it's very difficult to change majors when you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experienced team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Want to share a quick word? about Founders Federal Credit Union. If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthal. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. You mentioned the Texas A&M uh, fundraising for recruiting class, uh, tech, uh, Texas as well. Others, I mean, clearly we're headed that way uh, where uh, you're going to have trust or whatever set up um, where donors can contribute. I mean, I think in South Carolina that's it's not legal yet, but um, they're going to work through the legislature to sort of uh, remove some of those um, restrictions uh, as a as somebody who was in fundraising in IPTE, uh, do you think there's a concern about naturally if you're raising money on one hand to to 
for this whole new endeavor, <laughs> um, paying players for their name, image, likeness, are you then taken away from the pool that you're asking for money for you know, donations for, for IPTE? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know you're not finally attuned to this in the moment, but I'm just on a general level. Is would that be a concern yeah. to you as a as the head? It, it would be. I um, I mean, I th- I think you're right. I think there's a lot of consensus out there uh, where people are getting a little frustrated with you know the way this is going down. And he- here's one thing that I I will say: what made Clemson successful to what it is today and that was IPTE and you know in the 80s during the time I was coaching here I mean we won conference championships in tennis and cross country and track and soccer and national championships with coach Ibrahim and now with Mike Noonan but um, but I think what was happening is Ipte fully funded the scholarship maximum max at at each uh, program. So if you had um, eleven baseball scholarships, um, Ipte provided eleven baseball scholarships. Maybe at Wake Forest they had six, or maybe at Duke they had six. So scholarships made us successful, and. You know, when I was in IPTE, um, it, it wasn't actually, um, I'll give credit to somebody at Maryland that, that helped me, but it was um, championships begin with scholarships. Mm. And we tried to make that our slogan, and that, that is true. I mean, if you can provide scholarships, but I often wonder, I, I'm not sure I can answer your question, but I wonder how that is going to impact if somebody is making you know if you got every football player making you know twenty five thirty thousand dollars do you have a proclivity to continue to give the ipte now if you want your seats and parking i guess mm-hmm. you will but um you know uh, i i think that's a that's a real curveball to the change of uh, you know changing the game of football and donations and whatnot. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I wonder about Texas A&M. What's going to happen to next year's class? Are they going to raise another $30 million? Right. You know? And uh, so that's why I say I, I, I hope that, I mean, I, I think the NCAA has somewhat lost its voice or its power, but surely they ought to examine this and, and have some, and, you know, I don't know if you put a maximum on what a student-athlete can raise. Uh, I mean, we're a capitalistic society. I mean, I don't know how you do that. Maybe that's an antitrust um, suit or whatnot. But it it just seems like um, you're actually paying paying for the best recruits. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how I conclude, with, you know. How much of this is um, college athletics making its own bed by sort of selling its soul for the, the, the money, uh, the, just the oceans of money. you got coaches making $10 million, yeah. and now there's everything's just cutthroat, a cutthroat money grab with conference realignment and 
Texas and Oklahoma leaving in the middle of the night, uh, sort of, a, um, I guess, some deceitfully, uh, underhandedly uh, d- d- colluding and going to the SEC and all that. How much of this is was inevitable, just given the large amounts of money that are being uh, pursued and, and yeah. made? I mean, I, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm going to draw my own conclusion here, but I think this this started with the coaches, you know, that were making pretty significant salaries. And um, I'm sure the student-athletes probably said, hey, you know, people are coming to see us play, and we want to we want a part of it. And I don't know if it stopped. I mean, will the student-athletes try to get a portion of the ticket money? Uh, will... The student athletes, uh, um, you know, try to get a portion of the donations, um, and that's why I say it's lost its value. You know, the scholarship in all of this has lost its value. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to go to school if it wasn't for a scholarship for me. I mean, I'm 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 always will be indebted to football and athletics for what it gave me an opportunity to do. And um, I certainly didn't have anybody giving me fifty thousand dollars at Indiana State. But um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not sure how this is going to affect the annual fund. You know, um, you know, I, I go back and look at boxing when boxing was great. And you had Muhammad Ali and George Foreman and Frazier and and you know those fights weren't always on TV, but they were at pay pay for per view places, you know theaters and whatnot. And and then you know it just kind of uh, people stopped going to it. You know they they lost their interest. Right now, I, you couldn't tell me I couldn't tell you the heavyweight champion mm-hmm. in the world is so. Um, and I think some of that has happened to NASCAR, you know. So um, I certainly hope it doesn't happen to college football because it, it is America's game. The uh, On one hand, it's hard for me to, uh, from a legal perspective, it's hard for me to totally disagree with with the advent of, of players being able to get more and to, and to, in some ways, capitalize off of their name image names image and, and, and likenesses uh, but on the other uh, it bothers me when uh, the advocating for that includes the the sort of the um, the belief that um, what they get now is nothing and you yes. mentioned that a yeah. minute ago the, yeah. the value of the scholarship like I talked to a lot of former Clemson football players who have degrees and I've yet to find one who uh, doesn't treasure that and who right. doesn't doesn't find great value in that education. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to figure out what it would be, how you would calculate the value uh, of just that um, and how much uh, well, financial value has come from. from I mean, a- getting that degree is a lifetime beacon for opportunities for career to use the alumni organization, to use the career center, uh, to get references from teachers and coaches. I mean, 
Um, I've always said, uh, you know, just getting a degree really basically says you have the ability to learn. It doesn't mean you're going to be an expert in management or marketing or in education or psychology, but it opens that door um, to just about anything you can um, career-wise that you want to do. And people will teach you what you want to do. And, um, that, you know, that's, that's why I always would tell um, some of those athletes that would leave early, I'd say at some point, you know, your career is going to be over and you're going to want a job. And they're not going to ask you what your grade point average was, and they're not going to ask you what you majored in. They're going to ask you one thing. Did you graduate? And, and you know, you, that's, that's the key. Did you graduate? You just need to say yes. You know, I have a degree from Clemson, you know, so. You were telling me uh, a few minutes ago off the air about your upbringing and how uh, there wasn't much of an educational background um, with, your, with your parents and how that ultimately was, it allowed, was what allowed you to develop a real strong connection with the, with the athletes that you were interacting with at Vickery. Can you share your story and, yeah. and your parents and uh, yeah. that background? I mean, I grew up in a small coal mining town that was probably 90% Italians, uh, quite a few um, that were, um, you know, came straight from Italy, a lot of immigrants. And uh, my mother was the uh, oldest, the uh, second oldest of 10, and her father died when she was about 13 or 14, and she actually quit school in 10th grade to go to work to try to help the family. And, um, and then my dad, um, you know, he, he went to 10th grade, and uh, he actually worked in the coal mine for about 28 years. And then later on, it got a little dangerous. He got a little caved in a couple times, not on him, but close. And uh, I think he got a little afraid to go in there, and he ended up kind of finishing his career working for just a state park. But um, I think, you know, my mother and dad knew the value of education. They wanted... uh, you know, my bro- my oldest brother actually was probably the best athlete in the family, and he ended up going to East Tennessee State on a football scholarship. My middle brother was not as good an athlete, and we didn't really have the wherewithal to, to really go to college, so he went to the Navy. And then I was fortunate to get a scholarship at Indiana State, but I was very unprepared. I mean, I didn't know how to uh, what a retrieval system was. I wasn't really good at taking notes. Um, I was really unprepared for what that first semester was all about. And I, you know, I think today, you know, kids are talking to their parents about uh, what they want to major in, where they want to go to school. Uh, what they want to become, that, that's much more focused now. And um, <clears throat> it was an opportunity, and, you know, I, I was fortunate to be around some really good uh, teammates 
that were good people and wanted to be successful and uh, kind of came from a lot of the same background that I came from and, um, you know, helped me with study habits and various things of that nature. So I, I was actually, I ended up being a pretty good student. I ended up being a double major in criminal justice. Then I stayed my fifth year and played and got a phys ed degree. And then I ended up student teaching in East Chicago, Washington, which was um, a school that was about 50% African-American and 50% Spanish. And that was an experience wow. for me as well. So When was this? That was in 1973. As a matter of fact, you might remember... Um, they won the state basketball championship, and uh, Stoddard, who was a guy that played at NC State, and he was a pitcher as well, too. Um, I was a kid that went to UCLA, um, played basketball there. Another kid went to Louisville. Um, they really had a good team. It was an exciting to go to a basketball game there because you always had things going on, whether it was fights or whatever, but... Uh, it was a good experience about teaching, and uh, and so, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I could identify, you know, I, I always told kids this, I said, if you come to Clemson and you just play football and leave here without a degree, you're allowing the institution to somewhat use you, mm. you know, use you, and, and you're not, you know, you're not getting even by getting a degree. And, uh, and I think that, you know, that sunk into a lot of kids, too, you know, so. What, what would have happened to you had you not had football? Did get, was that sort of entry into uh, academics prob- and, gra- and, and a college degree? Yeah, Double that, degree. That was, um, that was, I graduated in 1968. I was only 17. I turned 17 my senior year in January. And... Um, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. I knew Indiana State expressed some interest in me and all that. And I probably would have went into the Army or the Marines, which, you know, Vietnam was going on. and uh, So it was a a God bless me that I had the opportunity. So, Did your grandfather come from Italy? Yes. He was an immigrant. Yeah. My my grandmother, grandfather on both sides. Wow. My mother's mother they were my oldies and my and and we lived in the in the same you know a duplex you've been to these you've been to newry that's yes. what my town looks like okay and, and my grandparents lived on one side and we lived on the other wow in the same house both italian families on yeah. both sides yeah, so both you're italian families on everywhere so you're full <laughs> <laughs> i'm in the fbi <laughs> it's amazing how I actually just got done reading a book on the 400-year history of immigration in New York City, and it's uh, just an incredible story. And it's amazing with the Italians how recent that is. I mean, we're talking like early, uh, early 20th century. Yeah, <laughs> it's 19. like not far removed. Yeah, my my uh, my grandfather had a brother that came here first. And he got a job in the mine, and he kept, you know, apparently Italy was devastated with the economy. He kept writing home to send, my grandfather's name was Gaitona, and, and, you know, and he was the 
he was the baby of the family, and you know his mother didn't want him to leave. And finally, he came and he had one suitcase, and he walked about twelve miles from the. You know, he, mm-hmm. he got off at uh, Ellis Island, took a train to Pittsburgh, and he walked about twelve miles to his brother's house. So, yeah. What What was the town called? Uh, where I grew up was Morgan. The town he walked to from Pittsburgh was called Muse. Okay. Uh, and so when you were growing up, was a lot of Italian being spoken? You know, uh, it's interesting you say that because we, my wife and I have been to Italy twice. And yes, um, probably... Uh, I could speak Italian and understand Italian because my grandmother never spoke English, you know, and um, uh, my grandfather did, but my grand grandmother didn't. But and uh, and then my my mother's father died before I I didn't know him, and then her mother died when I was probably three or something. But um, yeah, I mean, I could, but you know, it's it's like hitting a tennis ball. If you don't do it every day, you're gonna <laughs> lose it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so. Any good family recipes that have been handed down from the generations? Oh yeah, uh, we used to make um, polenta, which is uh, a yellow cornmeal, mm-hmm. and you you stir it, and then we would pour it on kind of a formica um, tabletop. And it, you, you kind of just spread it out like you're spreading concrete out. You let it cool a little bit, it gels, and then you pour the sauce on top of it. And I was never really too fond of it, but I, my wife and I are going to try to make it here sometimes. And we keep saying that. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. what, uh, when you were an assistant at Clemson, what, what, what did you make? What was your... I think I made... Uh, I came... From Southern Miss, I think my starting salary was like forty-four thousand. Wow! <laughs> I don't even know what that would be uh, with inflation uh, factored in, but not much, no. <laughs> even with that. Forty, and I think I I left at like around sixty-seven. Wow! Yeah, that's that amazing. Was in eighty-nine. I mean, so. even as recently as um, as, as the Tommy Bowden era. I mean, I remember. Um, maybe oh six oh seven when they gave Vic Coning a raise to two fifty, people were like, "Oh my God, what is going on here? This right. is um, it's just wild how much I, things have." I remember, um, I think it was right in around eighty nine, going in. There was a big article in USA Today, and I want to say that Coach Ford was the third or fourth highest paid coach and he made like 450 it was uh, Barry Switzer Pat Dye not necessarily in this order Paterno and then Danny Ford mm. and uh, so it was a big you know and I know coach Ford was upset because that was in the paper when I <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really get the whole public figure thing and the public university right. part. Uh, and then uh, Dabo, when he became head coach, he he wanted to get keep getting paid what he was making 
that salary he made as receivers coach, but they they bumped him to eight eight. I think it was yeah less less than a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it was incentive based. Yes, uh, yeah. I don't know how uh, you mentioned earlier about some of the tough decisions as a as a as an administrator, things like that. I don't know how. Was that just Terry Don and Katie Hill dealing with all the contract negotiations and things and things like that, or were you? Uh, you... I, was, I was part of that. Um, we talked about salaries and and various things of that nature. And I I, re- I do remember when we hired Dabo on that Sunday. Um, he told us when Terry Don offered him the job, he said, "I just want you to know that I'm going to go out and get the best offense and I'm going to get the best defensive coach." And um, that's when, um, you know, he went and got Chad. And then, you know, and shortly after, I think maybe Steele was still there a year, and then he went and got Venerables. Well, he stuck with – so he stuck with Napier for, for the, a year. For the 09 and, and 10 seasons. Hired Steele in 09, his first uh, full season. And then uh, brought Morris in in 11 – and then Venables in 12, 12 after yeah. Fire and Steel following yeah. the 70-33 uh, debacle. Um, well, you mentioned some of the hard decisions you have to make firing coaches. Can you, what, what, can you recall the hardest or, or the, when you were a part of the most difficult uh, decisions on the part of maybe uh, getting rid of a coach or – well, I, you know, I, I I think when you fire somebody, you know, you're, you're firing a family, um, somebody that's part of the community, um, and it it's not as easy as just to call somebody in and say, hey, um, you know, performance-wise, you haven't done it. Um, you know, I, I think you've got to paint a picture of why you're making that decision. I think that's important. I'm sure there are probably ADs that are just the facts and move on. I just, I just, I, you know, I let a few people go at Anderson when I was mm-hmm. there. And, um, um, you know, although the competitive nature is not as great there as it is at Clemson or the expectations, but... Um, you know, it gets down to personality and uh, recruiting and your effort and, you know, being in the office, paying attention to kids. And so I, I, I think it's important that you outline why you're making that decision, not just based on, you know, wins and losses, you know. And, um, you know, uh, there, there were some things that, you know, I, I look back at Oliver and of course, we didn't fire Oliver, but um, I spent a lot of time trying to convince him to stay. And, uh, and then, of course, he went to DePaul, you know. And uh, and then, of course, uh, Coach Ibrahim, you know, he uh, assaulted an assistant, and they made a big deal out of that. But of course, we we kept. Coach Ibrahim on so he could get his health insurance. So, you know, I think those are things you got to think about, you know. Um, All right, let's unpack those conversations with Purnell. Um, third, I guess to set the stage, third straight NCAA tournament, first round uh, exit. Um, four? It was three straight. Okay. Yeah, but fans who were a couple of years before overjoyed about just being in the tournament started to get sort of 
some heartburn about not advancing further. Uh, maybe Purnell is starting to feel not not as appreciated. That's just the surface level view of it. I want to hear um, when from from your recollection. When did you first get the call that that he was considering to Paul? How did that happen? What was the play by play? Well, it was Easter Sunday, and actually, I was in church, and I got a text from Oliver for me to call him. So I waited for Mass, and I got out, and uh, he he was trying to find Terry Don. And um, so I drove out to Terry Don. Terry Don wasn't there. I'm a, I was assuming he was in. So to make a long story short, I ran him down by probably one o'clock and um, Oliver at that time had made his decision and uh, now he was uh, he worked with the conference commissioner she was a senior women's administrator at Dayton Mm -hmm. before she became the conference commissioner uh, for when she was at DePaul and um, I, I think your assessment is right. I think it was kind of like, you know, we got beat by Villanova. We got beat by Michigan. I can't remember. Who Missouri. Else. Missouri, yeah, three exits, which, which Missouri kind of ran the same thing we did, you know, yeah. run and gun. And, you know, but, um, yeah, you know, the old saying about coaches is you try to stay ahead of the posse and before they get you. And maybe he felt that way way that you know um he would you know but i do remember us when we interviewed oliver um he told us very candidly that he was going to push professionally and that you know he had heard the reputation is that clemson hasn't made a commitment to basketball and terry don assured him that he would try to do everything he can to make him successful so and we did some things, you know, we, we renovated the Coliseum and whatnot, not to the extent that, that it is now, but, um, but yeah, I, I think Oliver was, you know, I think your consensus is right. I think he felt a little pressure on the fans that, you know. So when he reaches out to you trying to get in touch with Terry Don, is he basically saying, I need to talk to Terry Don so we can negotiate? I think he wanted to talk to Terry Don, and maybe he felt like that, you know, um, Terry Don was not interested in negotiating, but I, I kept calling him. Saying, you know, I don't know where he's at. I mean, you know, and I think he was actually on his boat that Sunday. And yeah. He came in for lunch. So, but um, and and I'm not sure Oliver may have made his decision, and he just wanted to tell Terry Don. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and you know, Terry Don. Uh, fl- I mean. Um, Oliver flirted with LSU too mm-hmm. at that time, so and uh, his name was mentioned and whatnot. So, so were you trying? Were you calling Oliver back, trying to get him to change? Trying to uh, well, change I his just mind? told him I, you know, he told me what he was thinking about doing, and and uh, I said, well, just hang on. I said, wait, you know, we can get all get get our head in the room and everything. But it sounded like to me that he was. He probably already made the commitment that he was going to go, but mm-hmm. I think he wanted to do it the right way by telling Terry Don. Mm-hmm. And what is he up to now? I hear he's down in Florida or Actually, something. Actually, I talked to him when um, Trevor Booker went in. 
he was at that time he was in California visiting his um, daughter. Apparently, mm-hmm. he has two daughters. One lives in Chicago. One lives in California. And he said he'd been out there for a month. But yeah, he lives somewhere on the Panhandle of Florida. So and doing well. He said he's enjoying it. What do you think? I mean, Dabo obviously an incredible decade of football. Oh. Uh, Hall of Fame coach. Um, you could argue the most important sports figure in this state's history um, by far. Uh, but with all this changing upon us, um, what the name and likeness, the portal, um, do you think he has to adapt in some ways? Like, how do you, I mean, Obviously, they they turn things around this season. Ten and three is a oh, yeah. is a heck of a year when it's your down year. <laughs> um, I'm just curious for your, what you see from afar uh, in 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 how uh, he might receive just all these different dynamics and and variables and factors and forces. Well, I think the staple for Dabo. And you're right. He has done an incredible job and built an incredible program here. Uh, One that we had regional recognition to national recognition. But, you know, I think Dabo's DNA is really about sincerity, authenticity, and developing kids, seeing kids graduate. And have an opportunity to go on, whether it's to a career or uh, to the NFL or to coaching. I mean, I think that is something that I see that is rewarding to him. That's gratifying to him. Now, all these changes, I hope he doesn't ever get frustrated and leave Clemson. Um, But uh, I think Dabo has done a tremendous job with adapting to some of his staff leaving. You know, Tony Elliott, um, Venerables, you know, uh, Thad Turnipseed. Um, and, um, I mean, I, I, Dabo has always had a plan. You saw the notebook that he gave mm-hmm. us. I mean, um, he's not going to be surprised. He knows what he's doing. I have confidence in him. We had confidence in him when we hired him. And... Um, but I, you know, I think these are challenging times, not just for Dabo Sweeney, but for all coaches. Uh, in 2010, when they're six and seven, lost to South Carolina, I guess, for the second straight year, which back then was like the apocalypse because it hadn't happened since <clears> the, <throat> I think, the late 60s. Um, what are you thinking privately? Are you thinking, man, this might not work out? This might be a this experiment might might blow up in our faces. Well, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but you know Terry Don and I used to stand on the sideline of the game. Yeah. And after that game, Terry Don grabbed my arm and he said, "I want you to meet me in Dabo's office." So, what do you think was going through my mind? <laughs> <laughs> and and he didn't tell me, you know. So. Um, I, you know, I went up to through the West End Zone and went to Dabo's office. His, his office was open, and uh, so I went in and sat down. And uh, shortly after, 
uh, maybe about 10 minutes, Terry Daunt came in. And then, of course, Dabo was doing his press conference and, and whatnot. And, um, and Terry Don, you know, he didn't say anything to me, like, you know. And um, shortly after, I heard Kathleen say to Dabo as he was coming down the hall, said, Billy D and Terry Don are in your office. So I'm sure Dabo probably thought. Yeah. You know. But this was a more remarkable thing that I learned from Terry Don. This was unbelievable. And um, he told Dabo, he said, sit down. He said, Dabo, he said, I want to tell you, I believe in you now more than I did when I hired you. And he said, I know that we're going to take uh, a little criticism. And uh, he said, you know, already criticizing because you weren't a coordinator and everything. But he said, I got your back. And he, he said, you get with Billy D and tell us what we need to do to help you be successful. And, um, and he said, we're going you know, to get through this. And to me, I mean, I just... I was just like, you know, <laughs> this is great. And, uh, but that showed me something about Terry Don. You know, I mean, he he could have easily said, "Look, you're inexperienced. You know, you're not going to get this done and all that." But um, you know, credit to him for that leadership. And I'll never forget that that moment. And uh, and then you know, I think I was in Ipte at that time, Dabo was in my office like 7.30 the next morning with a two-page list of things. <laughs> and we tried, to, we tried to help him meet, you know, what he wanted. What know? was on the list? Well, you know, he talked about long-term things like facilities and stuff like that. He talked about uh, helping coaches um, in camp, you know, paying high school coaches more to come to camp and paying for their – um, travel and whatnot. Other other schools were doing that. Um, things for student athletes, like I can't really remember. You know, things in the locker room and mm-hmm. all that. So, I mean, he had a vision. You know, he wanted to help his coaches. You know, not, nothing about him. You know, I mean, that's the thing about Dabo. He's always been a searchlight. He's never really kind of been a spotlight. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he's always searching to help somebody mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, promoting his staff, you know, building them up, helping somebody, you know, so. That's crazy. That story about Dabo's office with Terry Don yeah. after that game, it's been told yeah. by Dabo several times, but I never knew you were yeah. actually in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was in a room when Dabo almost quit, too. All right, I got to hear this. <laughs> well... Um, you know, when, when Dabo took the job, he actually wanted to do some things. He, you know, he wanted to hire, first of all, he wanted to hire, um, um, Johnson. Johnson. And, you know, that was on that Sunday. He told us he wanted to hire Ellis Johnson. So, um, you know, Terry Don was supportive of that. Well, I had called down to South Carolina and Ellis had a buyout for like $400,000. So, you know, he told, you know, he, he told me, so we can't do that. 
And I said, well, I'll go around there and tell, you know, Dabo. And I, <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got tasked with that. <laughs> so so anyway, and, and Dabo was fine. He, he kind of understood. And then one of the other things is we tried to, he wanted to hire, he wanted to hire Woody. And, but Woody as what his position is now, not as, you know, but he wanted to pay him a pretty healthy mm-hmm. salary. You know, I can't remember what it was, but, and, you know, Terry Gone was a little bit Twitter-pated with that because, you know, he said, we can't pay that, you know, for an off-the-field coach and everything. So anyway, I, I, I said, look, you need to come down there and, and talk to Dabo, you know. So Terry Don, and, and, I, and I think Dabo... To this day, I think what he was thinking is that when we let um, Tommy Bowden go, we were paying him like two point two yeah. million. So he was thinking that money was available. Yeah. Okay. So you know, you know, Terry Don said, "Well, we can't do this with Ellis, and we can't. I'm not sure we can do this with Woody and all that." And Dabo, he'll tell you, he threw his keys up in the air. He goes, I'll tell you what. He said, I've never been so frustrated. He said, I feel like walking through that door right there. And Terry Don got a little bit upset, you know. And um, and I said, wait a minute. I think I know. I think I, I said, you know, Dabo, you think that there's a million two available. I said, we still have to pay Tommy. Yeah. You know, so we settled that down. But he'll tell you that he almost quit. That, uh, was this in Tommy's office? I'm, was, I'm sorry, Debo's office? This or was where Dan's office was. Okay, the corner office. Yeah, so yeah, Debo's. Yeah. Ask, ask Debo about that. He'll <laughs> tell you about that. <laughs> so he. <laughs> So what calmed him down was... Well, I think we... Yeah, what calmed down is I said, look, I think this is where we're divided here. I said, you know, I felt like, um, you know, Monaghan Bagan or, you know, just, uh, you know, or Colin Powell, an ambassador there. And, uh, you know, we we got it settled down. We got it straight. We got Woody hired and, you know, we moved on uh, from Ellis and all that because, we you know, we weren't going to pay that buyout, so... I'm sure y'all have had some laughs about that day oh, yeah. over the oh, years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, actually, when Terry Don, you know, got his, uh, he got uh, recognized for being an honorary alumnus. Mm-hmm. And we did that over in the West End Zone. And Dabo spoke, and he said, you know, I almost quit. He said, ask Billy D. He was in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Is there anything else that... Anything that I haven't brought up that that you want to talk about? No, I think that's good. Wonderful conversation as well, always, Billy D. I appreciate it. Thanks for all your service you. to the community, and and uh, we look forward to visiting with you again. And if you go through Central, just be <laughs> careful. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thanks to Billy D. I don't think he's going to cut me any favors if I ever get in, into any trouble in my hometown here. So I better stay on my P's and Q's. Appreciate him sharing his time with us. Appreciate also our very loyal sponsors for their support. And most of all, of course, thanks to all of you for hitting play every week. Everybody be safe. Have a great weekend. Be back next week. Cheers.